My collaborator in this episode is Laura Joman Martin, a student of Jan Chosen Bays and Hogan Bays, and member of the Zen community of Oregon. In 2016, Laura was part of the leadership team that put together an offering called Waking Up to Whiteness for members of their Sangha. In our conversation, Laura shares what she learned about creating a container for her and other white practitioners to start the very essential work of learning to see their complicity in white supremacy. While she is a Zen practitioner, Laura says that it's been her experience as a social worker that has informed much of her understanding of what it is to be of service, as well as the urgency for this kind of work. Laura names patience, humility, and bearing witness as three key factors that have supported her. The patience to meet folks where they're at, the humility of seeing our imperfections and embracing our ability to become better people, and a willingness to look at what is toxic and ugly in order to address it. First of all, thank you so much for making time to collaborate with me on an episode of Everything is Workable. Thank you. Uh, I love connecting with people who are doing similar kind of work to what I like to do, but from, from like a different practice perspective. So mm, I've got mm-hmm. my whole Tibetan background and you have your lovely Zen background. That's right. And to speak to that background, I do frame this in like the most buddhist way possible is I like to ask people what their experience was of moving from I am suffering to there is suffering. Like shout mm-hmm. out to the story of Gautami and the mustard seed. <laughs> Yes, 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 definitely. Well, um, my, I, I'm a social worker too, mm-hmm. and I've been a social worker a lot longer than I've been a Buddhist. I think that my professional career has been around, uh, I, I realized later that it is the Bodhisattva vow to, to relieve suffering. And I honestly recall a specific moment in high school when I was in a, a program that was, you know, I was in high school in the 80s. It was funded by a lot of the Just Say No money that was happening for drug and alcohol abuse prevention for adolescents in that time. And so this was a group, kind of a retreat type thing. And there were small groups and adult and teen co-facilitators. And that was a point at which I, I actually had an adult validate my feelings for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and and um and then I had a pretty amazing high school counselor who taught all the teenagers how to do active listening and basic group facilitation skills that that are taught to counselors. And when I learned how to do that, I realized I could do this for other people. That that sort of witnessing and that kind of um, yeah validating was something that I realized felt so amazing. But then that I could see how how powerful that could be to offer that back to others. So honestly, that, uh, that particular way of working with suffering has been something I've cultivated professionally for quite a few years. And then it really, um, I don't know, just falls into the, the Bodhisattva ideal. It really, there's no interruption in that in terms of my Buddhist practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, when I first learned of the Bodhisattva vow and understood the aspirational aspect of it, mm-hmm. I was so jazzed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. so jazzed. Mm-hmm. It's so practical and just really kind of hands-on, on the ground. How do I be of use? How do I be of service? And that speaks very strongly to me. Yeah, and, and also that 
understanding that service isn't about fixing or saving mm-hmm. and that sometimes the greatest service you can give is just to bear witness like that mm-hmm. in that feeling of being seen and understanding mm-hmm. how valuable that is mm-hmm. and that, yeah yeah, yeah that, that shouldn't be underestimated i think it's easy to underestimate that and uh when it ends up being a real returning place for me and amplified or at least underlined or really it becomes a an act of awareness, an act of just being with and, and, and simply witnessing without coming from this helper place that can be really problematic. It's a separation to mm. see ourselves as a helper and then it forces people into a role, the one to be fixed or the one to be helped. And that it's pretty hollow for both taking roles like that. But uh, I find that when we're willing to be aware of our own suffering, that the suffering of others is no different. Um, I mean, certainly different, but that it's, it's something that unites us all. It's our common humanity. Yeah. And uh, that whole suffering difference thing is definitely, I want to come back to that. Yeah. Let's come, come back to that. Because I think like, yeah. it's very pertinent. To yeah. It's, it's the same and it's different. How's it's that for Sam? And it's, the, and it's different. Yeah. It's both ends. Both ends. Yeah. Both ends. Yeah. 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 So I've been going to a lot of workshops and also leading workshops and classes and stuff uh, that are all focused on getting your average white person. When I say average white person, I mean, not a neo-Nazi, just like your everyday <laughs> <my wife>. <laughs> <laughs> to acknowledge our complicity in white supremacy. And every single one of them always start or have some variation on the question of when did you realize that you were white? And so I, I don't want to ask that question specifically of you. I want to actually ask when you realize that as someone who benefits from whiteness, that there was something that you could do and should do about it. I grew up in a conservative Republican family. And Oof. so it took, yeah, <laughs> it took some time for me to realize that the ways that that happened were number one, entering into the field of social work. It did not take long for me to have a front row seat to exactly how wrong the things I had been taught were. And I was fortunate enough to, in my undergraduate internship, work in a place where my supervisor was and is, she's still alive, but she she was an intersectional feminist before there was a term for that really, or maybe there was, but it wasn't a well-known term. But that is, I, I learned a, a pretty intersectional perspective from her and from the work that we were doing in a uh, domestic violence shelter. And that made me realize how little I knew. I think the best teachers help us really see that. And I think that she helped me see that and just my experiences helped me see how, how insulated I had been and how ignorant I was and how completely inadequate my education had been. And so what I did was what I knew how to do, which was go to more school. <laughs> and I, <laughs> so I, I almost have a minor in African-American studies. Uh-huh. I just started trying to learn as much as I could because I could see just how much of a deficit there was in my understanding in this area. So I'm really grateful for that opportunity And I think that helped me with a wider frame to to look at these issues, the systemic and historical frame 
Yeah. Learning to see systems is like such an interesting experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I do like to talk to people about it. Just a, a little add in because Google is very useful that way. The term intersectionality was coined in 1989 by Kimberly Crenshaw. So it was 89. Yes. When... So it had been coined, but not in wide use. But not in wide use. Yeah. yeah. Um, My experience would have been in probably 92. So where this and this was kind of before the internet, so you know, unless yeah. someone was reading the journal that she wrote in, which I don't, I don't know that that I was for sure, but I'm glad that's a term that's now widely available. It's just a a, a way to understand how to, how to look at this, how to how to look at at all of this. Yeah, and and what you're saying about the education system, right? It's like so for me, I realized I had all of these blind spots. Mm -hmm. when I was, I didn't realize all of them kind of thing, but mm -hmm. it was like, they started to become something I, I was like, what? Oh, there's something there that I didn't know about when I was 17, because mm -hmm. like, I had this teacher who challenged the narrative that I'd been given, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, very specifically a social studies teacher. And we were learning about apartheid in Africa. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I'd never heard about this. And he was like, do we have segregation in Canada? And we're like, well, we used to. And he's like, what about the reservations? Mm, <laughs> and, wow. and I was like, whoa, I was taught that those were good. You know, like mm, I was taught the reservations were a positive thing. Mm -hmm. No one has ever said otherwise. And that was mm. my first experience of having that education challenged. And yeah. it's interesting because within education systems, you do get both in. But what you're saying, right, like it's harder to connect with the broader view because there is a curriculum that is very much laid down by the dominant narrative. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, in social work, uh, the social work perspective includes a systemic perspective. We call it micro, meso, and macro. So I had been taught to think that way also. You know, it was kind of coming at me from all sides, mm -hmm. really, really teaching me how to look at these things. And I was really just also fortunate to get the kind of experiences and exposure to the right right material, the right people at the right time for me, for, for that level of development, wherever I, wherever I was there. And then. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, oh, it's just one of those things. I'm like, gosh, if, what if we started at this, especially if you can't go to college, what if we did this right. in, in, you know, middle school and high school? Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I remember in one of my classes, I did a paper, I did a research paper. I grew up in a suburb of St. Louis on the Illinois side and grew up with a lot of myths about East St. Louis, which is a, a predominantly black suburb next door. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a lot of ugly myths that people from my hometown perpetuate. And I was able to find some references to a race riot that happened in uh, the early 20th century that provided me with a lot of information I had no idea about. And so, yeah, the 100th anniversary of that just, just happened. And I don't think that the, the truth of that episode has been widely publicized in the area. And, and what's amazing is that I think all areas of the United States have these pockets of myths and ignorance uh, that, that aren't being effectively corrected, mm. at least not among white people. That's been my experience mm -hmm. uh, there in that area and here in Portland as well. So to speak to that then is the, the way the systems work and the way that mm -hmm. they are all pervasive through all areas mm -hmm. of our lives. And and I think this is probably pretty inarguable that if you are a Dharma practitioner in North America, 
um, throughout lots of Europe. There is like a stark separation between white Dharma communities and Dharma communities that are predominantly like Asian led and dominated Mm -hmm. um, and actually have membership and congregation that are either like very white or actually uh, a lot of immigrant populations Mm -hmm. and not predominantly English speaking. Mm -hmm. And so within a lot of these white Dharma spaces, people are starting to, because of like the overall cultural shift, look at this problem. of the way white supremacy is playing out in their communities. That's right. So how did you come to that work? I've been practicing with the Zen community of Oregon for about 15 years now. Mm -hmm. And it's been a really wonderful organic relationship for me, gradually stepping further and further into practice, uh, retreat practice and weekly practice, and then leadership helping the place keep going. And I... As I've moved closer into leadership, I, mean, I had identified this as a need mm-hmm. in our community and had made some inquiries or made some attempts or tried to initiate some discussions about uh, maybe we should hire someone to help us look at this or, you know, what if we address this in some way, shape or form? And And it never, you know, there may have been some Uh, oh, but we're not racist, we don't need that, or never really caught any headway at all. People I would maybe want to work with to do something would, you know, move or other things would come up. And so it just never quite happened. And then our teacher group, our leadership group of folks who had some teaching responsibility uh, met, and we were assigned to bring just any article from one of the glossy Dharma magazines to just present and talk about a regular Mm -hmm. magazine article. And of the group of say, maybe 15 people, four or five of us shared the same article, which was, there was an article of Buddha Dharma in the spring of 2016 that was focused on racism and and whiteness in uh, Dharma communities. And so many of us brought that or an article from that particular issue Mm -hmm. to talk about. And that, kind of got us on the same page. We had ended up having a really important conversation in the leadership, the, the teaching leadership. Mm-hmm. And I could see that there was a openness and a willingness in this group. And I think that I had previously become aware of uh, the organization White Awake, whiteawake.org. And if, if I hadn't been aware, it was something that I ran across as I was searching for a way to bring this material, bring something to do something right mm-hmm. in our community. And so I spoke with a couple of other people. I happen to have a, um, a practitioner friend of mine, another MBSR teacher who was staying at my house on her way to another retreat, Eileen Spillane. She had done the spirit rock community Dharma leader training. And in their training, they had put together a curriculum also to, to deal with the, the white people in that program who needed some remediation. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, that's just, let's just call it what it is. It's okay. It's mm. okay. Because we weren't taught the truth about all of this and it's okay. We have not understood from our perspective. We are, we have been enslaved from this. So it's okay to, to, I just call it, yeah, remedial work. That's yeah. all it is. Mm-hmm. So I think I did my best to, 
to talk to other practitioners who had engaged in this work. And she, she referred me to another person in um, Idaho, Alice Robson, who, who had been doing work in her community in Bozeman. And so that was the sort of backup or community that I needed and to really just make sure I wasn't going off the rails. And so, yeah, that's, that's how it happened. That, that I feel like the metaphor for me energetically kind of is that in my community, it was like a double Dutch jump rope that I was just waiting for the place to jump in, you know, where you kind of stand there and try to sort of move your body and in time to the, and see where the opening is. And it took me a while to find that opening. And so there's something to be said for urgency. And I think it's important to have a a drive and to prioritize these things. There's also something to be said uh, for, I mean, you could call it complacency, but it could also be patience. And I think there's a, it's important to, I think, discern all of those at least for, for me, it was being patient mm-hmm. and waiting for the, the right moment. And also because I, had, I was coming from within the community gave me a particular ability to, to deliver something to the community. Early in my social work career, one of my, uh, in, in my education, one of my social work professors had said, I remember it really clearly in undergrad, you're either you, you should decide if you're going to work within systems or outside of them. Mm. And I think that's an important thing to just be conscious of. And uh, so there's a lot we can do on each side. And mm. this was a situation where I was working from within the system. Mm-hmm. And that enabled me to do quite a lot at that time, at that very time. But I had waited for it had waited for that opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 It took a while. And I think that's a really important thing to name too, because there is, there is urgency. This is Mm -hmm. urgent work that needs to be done, but consistently talking to different guests, just talking to people in my life, everyone says like, yes, it's urgent. And yes, it's frustrating when people are not willing to engage, Mm -hmm. but if they're not willing to engage, then you can't get anywhere with them. Like you can't yeah. force someone yeah. to want to change their mind and work right. with their mind. <laughs> right. So I think it is important to, to, again, to prioritize these things. And if we keep it foremost in our mind, then we'll see those opportunities when they mm-hmm. arise, when they do happen, be yeah. ready for them when they do. But yeah, they, we can't really be effective if we're forcing something yeah. Well, and it's also not a good use of our energy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So personally, this is, this is like my jam and my thing that mm. I really love is, is for me coming to the Dharma, mm. I was like, oh my God, the Dharma is, it's for everyone. And mm. it, it, there's a practice for everything, <laughs> practice for everything. And when I listened to, I listened to an episode of On Being, it's one of my mm. favorite episodes of On Being with Dr. Mazarin Banerjee. Mm. who is one of the two people who came out with the Harvard implicit bias, mm. implicit association tests. So mm-hmm. those are online. I suggest people mm-hmm. go take them. They're really fascinating. Yeah. And what, what those have revealed again and again is we internalize the messages of the systems and the dominant culture that we live in, whether we want to or not. And it's a really, I mean, I love it. I love doing those tests and being like, fascinating. Because for me, it's like cutting through ignorance and I'm all about cutting through ignorance. Mm -hmm. But the presentation in that episode of On Being is 
so you can see it, but can you do anything about it? Mm. And as soon as I listened to that episode, I was like, well, yeah, that's the great part about having a Dharma practice because mm. Dharma practice is about interrupting habits mm-hmm. and shifting them. And white supremacy is a habit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've been taught mm-hmm. really, really well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what are the Dharma practices that have helped you in doing this work? Mm. I think the first one... And this may sound, this may, this may kind of feel a little out of left field, not as a quote unquote practice, but in this particular, for this particular question, I think for me, it was Sangha practice that really helped me. And the, the way that we did and do our Awakening to Whiteness curriculum includes group work, includes being together in a small group for six months and we meet once a month and discuss the month's readings and materials together. And there is no crosstalk. Uh, It's a very tight container for this kind of radioactive material. And I think that's a very, it was a very, the very wise direction from White Awake helped us to, uh, we just did what they said and um, found even surprisingly that this container is very powerful and is very appropriate to transform this toxic waste Mm. and to transform our minds. So it is also this act of witnessing, this act of holding our assumptions, our reactions in awareness, not just with ourselves, but with each other. And there's something really powerful about that because white supremacy is created in, in a group, is created in the same way and, and perpetuated and validated by others. So to have a group of other white people coming together with this intention of untangling and dismantling and dissolving what we've been taught and to help each other examine this is profoundly powerful to be witnessed in this way, to be held within community in this way. I think that's been the most powerful practice for me in doing this work. And of course, there are practices like mindful self-compassion that have been also very helpful. It's kind of easy to get paralyzed in shame. Mm -hmm. And that actually doesn't help anybody. That, I mean, that's an avoidant to me is one of those interesting ones is like, right, how do we support each other in working with guilt and shame, right? Like uh, not batting that because, you know, that's heaping shame on shame, not helpful. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's inevitable to the work, but it's just, it's just nuclear waste and it's our responsibility to put on our hazmat suits and, and try to deal with it, try to keep it from getting all over other people. <laughs> contain contain that Mm -hmm. it's one of those those moments when i remember i was like when i say i want compassion for all beings Uh i'm part of that all beings yeah the 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 truth about compassion and self-compassion is it is that uh, what you've just articulated is that it is an act of humility Mm -hmm. that i am not holding myself outside of everybody by saying well everybody deserves this except me i'm i'm no i am the worst (laughs) right yeah that's just that's just uh, (laughs) yeah that's just another form of of setting myself apart and it's not true 
Oh, I cannot remember who the teacher's name. I it was in the the collection of Buddha's daughters, and she writes about the conceit of suffering. Yeah. Mm. All right. Yeah. That that like oh, but I am a lost cause. Other people yeah. might be able to find yeah. redemption or liberation, but not me. Yeah. I'm the worst. Yeah. And it it's because it's an ego thing, you know. Like I look at this, and I look at how. From my perspective as a Canadian, the Canadian identity is really, really wrapped up in this idea of not being racist because mm-hmm. the Canadian identity is presented as this beautiful mosaic as opposed to the terrible melting pot of America, mm. which the translation of that is Americans are racist and Canadians are not, mm-hmm. which is BS. But it was BS. I had to, like, I had to learn to see through it. And a large mm. part of that was feeling this sense of pride for being Canadian. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not like those people doing so. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and and like what you said, right? Like it, it is about humility. It was totally yeah. humility. It was like going, oh, wait, maybe Canada's not the best country in the world. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. we also have a really huge history of colonialism. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> like genocide, alive and well in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Turns out. <laughs> Turns out. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was fed a lie. But that's, and that's the thing, like uh, listening to you talk about coming together in community specifically and mm-hmm. understanding like systems are built to produce only and exactly what they're built to produce. And the system of white supremacy is a system of silence. Uh, and if you're coming together as community to build a new system, right, that's what you have to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is. And it's, I guess, too, it's, it is the exact opposite. It is just going in the opposite direction to, to talk about this together, to witness one another and to, to be willing to, to hold each other in this intention to relearn, to unlearn and to, and to gather the truth together. And then, I mean, inevitably, the question is, then what do we do with this? Also, it just seems like there's so much, so much cleanup to do yet. Mm -hmm that uh, I think there's, that counts. What are some of the things that have come out of doing this? Because now um, Waking Up to Whiteness is in its mm-hmm. fifth or sixth offering? I think we just wrapped up the fourth one. And okay. the next one will be, we've been doing them, um, we did two in one year. So they wow. started, yeah. And so there's been four, but now it's going to be a regular offering from January to July. Uh-huh. So we just wrapped up another one and I have collected a zip drive full of the materials and here just, and here's what we did and been sharing that pretty widely with other sanghas and a couple of the local sanghas have done it too. I'm going to go talk to another sangha today with some of the organizers there that are going to put it together for their sangha. So there's something really beautiful about how that's happening. And in our curriculum, there's a lot of information relevant to the history of in Oregon and in Portland mm-hmm. specifically that I think is profoundly important mm-hmm. for white people in Oregon and uh, to know the history of this area, this location. Mm-hmm. Especially with the Pacific Northwest attitude of, yeah, like, kind of, I mean, it's the left coast, right? Yes. Kind of Canadian in that way. Right? Like, <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Yes. Look at those red states, PU. They're so racist. <laughs> <laughs> And so, have you have you seen like cultural change within your community specifically? Yes, I have. It's getting into the bloodstream of our community and it it has given all of us a shared language and a shared set of assumptions about how racism works. Mm-hmm. 
and how it might be functioning in our community. And while we certainly don't have the answers for addressing it, I mean, we don't have the magic bullet or anything, but what I think it does, this ability to be exposed to these materials, to expose our own vulnerability around these issues personally, Mm -hmm. gives certainly my experience, and I think the experience of many other people in our community is that there's a, I feel a lot more willing, if not comfortable, Mm -hmm. (laughs) willing to talk about this. Yeah. Uh, than I was before. I feel much more able to have a conversation about this with anybody than I did before. And I think that's true for others as well. Mm-hmm. But I also think that culturally, that there's just more of us on the same page. And that while we are a community that has both a, a city temple in Portland and a, and a rural monastery, there were numerous people who live at the monastery who took part in this and who have taken part a couple of times. And now the, some of the leadership at the monastery is saying, we need to have all of the people who are in residency here do this. So now there's oh, wow. going to be an in-monastery version of this. They don't have to come to the temple for it. They'll, they'll be able to do it there. That's fantastic. That's yeah. A, I just yeah. Think the way that it's being shared across communities as well as within. Within. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So great. Yep. So I think too that there's no way to know what the effect is. There is no way to know what impact this, this will have. But I trust that people who are very wholeheartedly, very earnestly ready to adjust our understanding of of what's true, adjust from what we've been taught and what we used to assume into this expanded and more accurate view. And and I think just knowing what we don't know, just to have this awareness of our own ignorance also can't be underestimated too. We're We're more right when we know how little we know. And that's another, just, it's just another way of practicing humility. Yeah, just another way of practicing humility. So I think that, I guess that's a cultural, maybe that could be said is something that's shifting our culture as a predominantly white sangha, that perhaps there's a little infusion of humility around that for all of us that, that have taken part in this process. It's awesome. It is, yeah. I mean, it's difficult, right? It's like there's not always data points for everything. <laughs> This is, yeah, it's, and yet I think everybody who I've spoken to who experienced this has felt it to be a just massively profound shift. So to finish off, I always just basically offer the space for you to say anything that you would like just as an offering to listeners who are either doing this kind of work or are coming from a similar place or interested in doing this kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, so just think of it as an open space to say anything that you didn't get to, or that you'd like to leave folks with or resources you want to point people to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I've certainly mentioned white awake. I just think that the work that's being done there is really helpful, has really helped me, has really helped our community. And, and I just, you know, having seen that they have curricula that are open source and, that was really what helped me see that this was something I could do. Mm-hmm. We used, uh, Ruth King now has a wonderful book 
mm-hmm. that addresses a lot of this. And um, I think that she has uh, some wonderful languaging about affinity group work. We had some pushback in that area in our community and some disagreement about whether that should be done. And uh, I think too, I would say to predominantly white sanghas who are wanting to do this work, I think you might not know where the pushback is going to come from, but you can probably time the trains by it. (laughs) It will come. (laughs) And I think my biggest fear was that I would inadvertently hurt someone or do it wrong. But I really just leaned on the on the writings of, of Ruth King as, as just very much reassuring and, and other people of color who are, who are really encouraging us as white folks to gather our people mm-hmm. and take care of this, take care of business. Yeah. So I, I really just have to prioritize and believe those words coming from the place of, of experience and authority and wisdom Mm-hmm. So, I, so I'll, she's one example, but uh, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot out there about how to do this, the importance of doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I'm really, I'm no expert in this at all. So, and I know there are experts, and we are wanting to really try to make sure that we're in consultation with people of color mm-hmm. when we're doing this work to not think that we know where the end of this is or (laughs) right. Like, okay, great. We're, we're woke. (laughs) Yeah. Did it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's back again, the Bodhisattva thing, right? Yeah. You're, you're doing service work. You're not fixing or helping or being a white savior. (laughs) No way, man. No way. Uh, I hope not. And I hope that if, that ever creeps in that that will be you know checked on that that that's and so we need to be able to have some some checks on ourselves for sure but but I think that I found just as a beginner and as a simple just like I'm just a member of a sangha that this is I don't want to say safe for me to do but it's certainly mine to do to work on my own racism and and to help other white people do the same and this is just one way to do that important work and it's it's incumbent on us to do it so getting getting help is a good thing and yeah may it be so maybe so (laughs) if not you then who yeah this is it's it's in our own it's in our own minds and hearts and so it's for us to address that for sure fantastic thank you so much thank you (laughs) thank you for all you're doing too it's it is there are a lot of people who are turned towards this it's true i think more people than I, i think people realize Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still not enough, but it's, it's happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is happening. It is happening. To learn more about the Zen community of Oregon, visit zendust.org. As Laura says in the interview, the curriculum her community used was put together with the guidance and resources available on whiteawake.org. The title of Ruth King's book, which she also mentions, is called Mindful of Race which is another excellent resource for Dharma communities who are looking to apply their practice to the work of undoing white supremacy. 
I'm incredibly grateful to my many patrons, without whom I could not make my practice the focus of my time and attention. Immense appreciation to Gretchen Wagner, Julian and Shannon Hatch, Winita Budgen, Margaret Prescott, Val Delane, Perry Pugh, Annika, Jennifer Harkness, Katie Bredbeck, Laura Mulkern, Michelle Puckett, Sierra Love, and Chrissy Bird. Patrons help me to cover the cost of producing this podcast, but also make it possible for me to do outreach for my chaplaincy, buy art supplies, and have focus time for writing. Visit CaitlinSCHatch.com to see the breadth of my work in the world. The original theme song for this podcast was created by award-winning singer-songwriter Tajai Moore of Moore Music. <laughs>